Well, good morning. Happy 4th of July. And welcome to Hope Community Church. Pastor Trevor, I'm grateful that you have chosen this day to be with us this morning, whether in person or for those of you who are at your lake house online. Appreciate you as well. I know you're out there and now you're feeling convicted. Anyway, a couple book recommendations. Um, and that just kind of happened. That was not planned, so maybe that's the spirit talking. I don't know. Anyway, we have, um, we, the church bought uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism with scripture books. We gave these books out to those who were baptized uh, last week, but we have a bunch of them um, in the back. They're on the table. So if you, want the, if you want to know how to articulate your faith more, your theology, what you ascribe to, this is an excellent resource. Keep it, um, keep it wherever you might read, in the bathroom, coffee stand, nightstand, just wherever. Keep it in your pocket, in the car. Um, it's... If you need reading glasses, you're definitely going to need it for this, though. Um, it, is, it is a little small print, but it's great, especially for children and those of you young in the faith or young in your theological knowledge. Um, simple questions, you know, like, uh, what is adoption? Answer, adoption is an act of God's free grace, and it goes on and provides scriptural references for it. Again, we have these in the back. And then two books that pertain to our topic today. Uh, one of them I talked about last week was Truth We Can Touch. Uh, by Tim Chester, uh, How Baptism and Communion Shape Our Lives. So this talks about both of the sacraments. This is in the library. Um, and so that's a, one resource. And then this one um, is the Lord's Supper, Answers to Common Questions. Uh, so this pertains specifically to communion, which we will talk about uh, today. Um, this comes from a Reformed background. background. So it has um, 11 questions. Uh, what is the Lord's Supper? What are the different views of the Lord's Supper? So if you have questions... Um, you can use this as a reference, whether you just look it up and leave it in the library or borrow it or buy it. It's there. Again, that's the Lord's Supper, um, Answers to Common Questions by Keith A. Matheson. So today we are in part two of a two-part miniseries covering the sacraments, baptism and communion. If you haven't listened to last week's uh, message yet, I would encourage you to go online, um, whether on YouTube or on our website or on Spotify, uh, listen to that sermon it will help you to uh, better appreciate today's message um, and, and see how communion and baptism relate all the more. Um, at the start of last week's message, I mentioned how the impotence of the church was related to the church's low view of the sacraments, which is rooted in a low view of the church. And I should add that a low view of the church is rooted in a low view of God's word, or at least a poor understanding of it. While this must be corrected, we must be careful not to swing the pendulum of belief and practice too far in the other direction. We must do our best to keep the pendulum in the middle as much as possible by being anchored in the Word of God. And we do this by continuing evaluating and continuing um, reforming our practices, our beliefs, and our understandings of Scripture in accordance to Scripture. So this morning, let us do that and let us not be led astray. Or let us be blinded by our own sentiment about communion or by our own traditions. Uh, this sermon, uh, the first half, is going to deal with the theology of communion, essentially. And then the last half is going to deal with uh, all the implications, all the questions, some of the questions that some of you sent um, to me um, in response to my pre-sermon uh, email. But before we begin with the message, let's pray. Holy Father, we come before you this morning on the 4th of July, the birth of our nation, Father. And we thank you for this country. We thank you for the freedoms that you've bestowed upon us at a high cost, Father, at the cost of many men and women who have 
willingly gave their lives so that we can have these freedoms. And Father, we are grateful for them, and we ask that you would help us to be good stewards of the freedom that you have given us, that we can gather um, to worship you, to praise you, and to hear your word, Father. We ask that you would bless this great nation of ours, Father, and we ask that you help us to do it in the best way that we can, by honoring you, by glorifying you. So, Father, this morning as we come, we hear your word. May your word and your spirit sanctify us, may edify us, may equip us, Father, so we can bless this nation with your grace and that we can be the witness of your light and of your glory and that we can be the anchor that this nation so desperately needs. Father, we ask all these things for your glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So communion is not what it used to be in the church. Nowadays, it's normally treated as an optional component of worship, something that the church often needs to find time to fit it in. This modern view of communion stands in stark contrast to how the church has viewed it historically. It has been suggested on more than one occasion that perhaps it ought to be the cup, not the cross, that represents our faith. Communion and baptism, but especially communion, has always been a key issue, a vital issue of our faith, especially in the Reformation. An issue that dealt with, during the, in the midst of the Reformation, it was an issue that dealt with the unbiblical practices of the Roman Catholic Church. Many of the reformers, for example, the Scottish reformer, John Knox, viewed the Roman Catholic observance of communion as a blasphemous act of idol worship because the bread and the wine, as thought by the Catholics, would miraculously become the real body and the real blood of Christ to which the Catholics would kneel in worship to receive. Since the bread and the wine was not actually Christ, Knox and other reformers saw it as a false god and thus an act of idolatrous worship. The issue of communion, though, wasn't just an issue between the reformers and the Catholics. It was also an issue among the reformers themselves, especially on the issue of transubstantiation, which is, that's the fancy term for the elements being miraculously turned into Christ. The reformers themselves disagreed on this issue. Luther himself believed in transubstantiation. He believed that the blood, uh, the wine and the bread did turn into the blood and body of Christ, whereas other later reformers, especially Knox and Zwingli, uh, did not. But communion was not only a key issue for the Reformation 500 years ago. The cup, not baptism, was the issue, the catalyst for the birth of the free church movement from the state churches of Europe in the 19th century. Baptism, yes, was a point of discussion, but it was the cup. It was communion that started the free church movement. And the free church movement is important because the free church movement is what gave rise to our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America. Our denomination was born, it was birthed over the issue of the Lord's table. It was the cup that led families to move to new lands and form new congregations where they could freely and rightly, in accordance with scriptures, partake of the bread and wine without a state government telling them who may or may not partake. Imagine that, though, leaving your homeland, picking up your roots, and planting them elsewhere just so you can partake of communion in a way that honors God, in a way that honors his word. Most today won't leave their church over communion, even if they know their church neglects it or disgraces it. They won't go across the street about the matter. They say they love their church and the people in it, and they couldn't leave it over something like communion, as if communion is a small thing. But I hope by the end of this message that you'll understand more why that is a foolish and an ignorant thought. Men and women have crossed the ocean in ships over this matter. Men and women have been burnt at the stake because of how they viewed the cup. And today, we often shrug our shoulders to it. 
So we must, we must have a sound biblical understanding of what communion is and why so many have died for it, why so many have given up so much simply to come to the table and to have some crackers and juice. Often, people act as if the holiness and faithfulness is rooted in how faithful they are to the local church rather than to God and to his word, and we must not be that way. We are not saved by how loyal we are to our local church or the church we grew up in. We are saved by the work of Christ, which is evident in our faith and sanctification. And a clear neglect for the sacraments lacks both faith and sanctification. And on this matter, no one can claim ignorance because Scripture is clear on this issue. And there is no lack of availability in America for reading Scripture or to study Scripture. But we should not be surprised at the amount of ignorance that does exist. According to more than one study, Bonner being one of them, shows that more than 90% of the people who attend church at least once a month have yet to read the Bible in its entirety. Clearly, biblical illiteracy is rampant among professing believers. It's been shared with me by missionaries who serve overseas that often communion is one of the first things that new believers want to partake in, especially in persecuted areas. Not just once or not just every one to six months, but as soon as they are able to, once they are baptized, they want to come to the Lord's table. And it's in persecuted areas where our brothers and sisters in Christ, even today, are willing to go to great lengths just to taste the wine, to taste the bread, so they can be in fellowship with Christ. Yet here in America, we see them as a bother, as a burden, as archaic, or perhaps even weird. As I said last week, the church in America acts as if they wish Jesus had said, think this or say this in remembrance of me instead of do this in remembrance of me. This is a stark contrast to the Puritan's view of communion. Here are the words of Richard Baxter. Nowhere is God so near to man as in Jesus Christ. And nowhere is Christ so familiarly represented to us as in this holy sacrament. Here we are called to sit with him at his table as his invited welcome guests to commemorate his sacrifice, to feed upon his very flesh and blood. That is, with our mouths upon his representative flesh and blood and with our applying faith upon his real flesh and blood by such a feeding as belongs to faith. Communion is vital to our faith. The bread and the wine are more than a memorial of Christ, and yet the bread and the wine do not become Christ either, as if he must shed his blood more than once for his beloved. So let's look at communion a bit closer and grow in our understanding and appreciation for Christ's gift to us. Let's talk about language for a brief moment. Communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the cup, the bread and wine, the table, all different ways to speak about communion. And forgive me if I don't stay consistent. I know I already haven't stayed consistent with the terminology. I'm just going to use whatever flows off my tongue as the context uh, makes easier. Communion, like baptism, is a seal, it is a sign, it is a pledge. But for us to understand that, we must know exactly what is communion, what is happening when we receive it. Let's begin by talking about one of my favorite things, food, specifically in the context of meals. Peace with God can be expressed by our meals. Meals and peace have often been connected throughout history, not just in Scripture. For to eat a meal, a person's significance has always been viewed as a blessing, has always been viewed as receiving some sort of good favor and, and honor by that person. 
It's one thing to meet the President of the United States, but it's a whole other thing to eat with the President of the United States. So let's look at how meals and food have been used in Scripture. When we look at the beginning of Scripture, the fate of mankind was determined by either eating with God or without God. Recall at Genesis 2 and note the role that food has in the instruction God gives Adam and Eve. In Genesis 2, 16 through 17, we read that they were allowed to eat from any tree except from one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And to eat from that tree would be an act of disobedience, thus not eating with God. But here we see that the plants, they are given to Adam and Eve in paradise to eat. Being able to eat was a blessing and a need even before sin entered into the world. And yet it is through food, it is through eating, that the devil tempted Adam and Eve to sin. And by Adam and Eve rejecting the meal that God had offered them, and by accepting the meal that Satan had offered them, they fall and bring a curse upon all humanity and creation. Then, more significantly, we have the Passover meal of Exodus 12, where in Exodus 12, 12 to 13, the shed blood of a lamb upon the doorpost would cause God's judgment to pass over them. God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and, all, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is a blood that was shed which led to their redemption, yet also a blood shed that allowed them to enjoy a meal in peace. Like they're eating this meal as death is going to pass over their house. They're able to enjoy a meal in peace, whereas those who did not have the blood on the doorposts could not. And for the years that followed, God's people remembered this act of Passover with the Passover meal annually on the day of which it happened. The next verse in Exodus 12 shows God commanding them to remember this night in this way. It reads, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Yet once the people are redeemed from Egypt, they find themselves in the wilderness. They are complaining. In Exodus 16, they complain about food. And that's where God tells Moses he will provide bread, manna for them to eat and to be satisfied, teaching them that it is God who is able to satisfy our needs. Then at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, God makes his presence, excuse me, his presence known there on the mountain. And God's holiness prevents anyone who had not yet been sanctified to step on the mountain without God's holiness breaking out against them. So then later in Exodus 24, at the same mountain, God makes a covenant with his people. And he establishes a covenantal relationship between a sinful nation and his holy self. A relationship that's made possible by the blood of an animal sacrifice. And as such, by the elders and them being sacrificed in blood and sanctifying themselves before a holy God, they're able to enter into the presence of God. And notice what they do when they do enter into the presence of God. Exodus 24, 9 through 11. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clear, clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and what did they do? They ate and drank with God. Tim Chester calls this the epitome of divine grace, a meal in the presence of God. 
sinful people who before couldn't set foot on the mountain now entered into the presence of God. They saw God, they beheld God, they ate and drank with God. In 1 Kings 4.21, the description of Solomon's kingdom for being prosperous and blessed is that Judah and Israel were numerous and they ate and drank and they were happy. And we could continue with more examples in the Old Testament of how God uses meals as signs of blessing and peace or, on the other end of the spectrum, how God uses the lack of meals and food in his presence as curses, especially in the books of the prophets during the time of the exile. But we do see the prophets speaking of a time to come when the people of God will once again enjoy a meal in God's presence, safe, secure, and happy. Consider Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8. On this mountain, that's Mount Zion, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death, death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It's all done over a meal. When we get to the New Testament, the events are a little bit more obvious. Of course, we have Jesus feeding the uh, various groups miraculously. Uh, In John 6, we have him uh, feeding the the one group, and then he gives his dialogue of, I'm the bread of life, uh, teaching ultimately that he is the one who ultimately satisfies our needs. And for a person to to eat a meal is to satisfy a great need and yet a basic need. I think we in America, we often take food and the ability, the opportunity to eat a meal for granted because we have so much of it. It's lacking. And now, of course, there are some out there who are not, do not have access to it like most of us do. But most of us, our problem is that we eat too much of it or we eat forms of it that are toxic to us. But to have food to eat is essential for physical life. Christ, by being the bread of life, satisfies our deepest spiritual appetites. He satisfies our deepest hungers as well as our most basic needs. For Christ is the word of God, and as Deuteronomy 8.3 tells us, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. But of course, the one meal that truly matters in the New Testament, especially in light of our topic this morning, is the Lord's last meal before the cross. For just as in Exodus, when God's people are commanded to observe Passover for the years to come, Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, commands his disciples to do likewise. The Last Supper of Christ becomes for us the Lord's Supper, communion as we know it. We'll read Luke 22:14 again, as David started so perfectly this morning with and almost got into my sermon with his devotion, which Lord led. It was good. So we'll read it again. When the hour came, he reclined at table, and that's Jesus, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and we had given thanks. He said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Then, in 1 Corinthians 11.26, we begin seeing the implications of communion. For here, Paul says, When we partake of communion, we proclaim the Lord's death. He writes, 
As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, this isn't a simple like heads up that Jesus died, like a breaking news alert, Jesus died. This proclamation of Jesus' death is a proclamation of all that his death entails. For when we proclaim the death of Christ, we proclaim the effects of his death, the implications, the results, essentially the forgiveness of sins. Just as the blood of the Lamb in Exodus 12 caused the Lord's judgment of death to pass over his people, now the blood of the Holy One of Israel, the spotless Lamb of Judah, causes the wrath of God to be averted from us to his Son, Jesus Christ. So communion, does not, communion also does not only remind us of what has happened, but will also, remi- also reminds us of what will happen, the return of Christ, when he will once again drink of the fruit of the vine, that is wine, which we will drink with him in his kingdom when it comes in its fullness. So when we speak of communion as a sign, a seal, and a pledge, it is a promise from God given to us. When we receive this meal hosted by Jesus, we are reminded of the new covenant and all the promises that are tied with the new covenant. We are reminded as we proclaim the death of Christ that Jesus lived and that he died and that he was raised, which has allowed fellowship with a holy God possible in spite of our sins. And we are reminded of what is to come, a banquet, a feast to be had when the king returns. Communion is a foretaste of that experience. We look back to look ahead. We look to the death and resurrection that happened 2,000 years ago in order to look into the future of what is to come. So if we do not desire to be at the Lord's table regularly now, what makes us think we will when he returns? Yet thankfully, it is not about our feelings. It's not that our feelings don't matter. They absolutely do. In fact, that they matter so much, it's why we have the sacraments, to help shape our affections, help shape our emotions and our desires. But how we feel about the bread and wine does not determine their effectiveness, their power, or their significance, just like with baptism. Communion is a divine act. It is a divine invitation to enjoy fellowship with God in the context of the church, in the context of the body of Christ. As we are reminded of who we are because of what he has done and promised, those truths, therefore, should form our emotions and our outlook and ultimately our acts of worship. So if we are unable to look back at our baptism, right? We talked about this last week. What happens if you can't recall the day that you were wet? Or if we have stumbled since our baptism, we don't get rebaptized. We, in faith, come to his table, and we receive fellowship there with him once again as we eat and drink with him, and we remind ourselves of the gospel. For what does the gospel taste like? It tastes like bread, and it tastes like red wine. The elements of communion are just like the water of baptism. They are simply bread and wine. They don't become the actual flesh and blood of Christ. They don't carry any divine value within themselves. As it has been said before, if the bread became Jesus Christ's actual body, it would stop being a sign or sacrament, for it would be reality itself. But within the right context, the bread and wine do carry value, value that is imparted upon them based on the context. This is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 8 through 11. When he's talking about food that's offered to idols, Paul is saying, it's just meat. That's all it is. It's meat. However, the context of which a person finds themselves, that does matter. It's the same with the bread and wine. Context matters. 
when the body of Christ comes together, when we gather to remind ourselves of the ratification of the new covenant made possible by Christ himself, by God himself, just as the elders did on Mount Sinai in Exodus 24, when we do this, then the bread and the wine, they're special for what they represent, for what they point to, for what they remind us of. So when we struggle through the week, dealing with temptations, dealing with rejections, loneliness, and we consider the promises of God, not only do we recall the promises we have read or heard, but we recall the gospel we have tasted. And it tastes like bread. It tastes like wine. A gift from above to nourish the body of Christ as we eagerly anticipate his return. But this is the thing. The bread and the wine will not taste like the gospel if you do not know the gospel. Knowledge of God's word Knowledge and experience of his gospel, that is, knowledge of Christ, is the substance of communion. Without it, communion is just a stale cracker and is an unsatisfying taste of juice that leaves you still thirsty. Now, I hope you see more clearly the theology that is behind communion as presented in Scripture and how and why it's a gift to us. And let's talk about how this is applied uh, specifically in practical implications for the church. Let me deal with the frequency issue first. How often, then, should a church observe or do communion? Viewing communion as a gift and a reminder of the gospel, why wouldn't we want to do it as often, at least as often as we gathered as a church body? We ought to look more like the people of God and not the people of the world as we mature and grow in holiness. And by ordering our worship services where his table is a priority, is a great way of doing that. And by prioritizing the table, we do not diminish the pulpit, right? We don't elevate the table above the pulpit. They both, both are necessary, and they both exalt the other. For what is set upon his table is his word. For the substance of the elements is the proclaimed word of Christ. Without his word, without the word of God, all that is before us is just bread and juice. They have no meaning. They have no purpose. If all sermons ever are, are motivational speeches or moralistic therapy sessions, then communion in that context is a waste of time. For all it will do is remind us of how hungry we are for lunch and how unsatisfying this bread and wine really is. And no wonder why communion has just fallen to the wayside in most of churches today, because most churches lack scripture in their preaching. Now, before we went weekly here, I hope, many shared the fear that communion would become mundane, a common objection, and a fair objection. But that fear is the same if you do it once a week, once a month, once a year, right? However, whatever the frequency is, the issue of it becoming mundane is still there. I personally struggled with it more when it was less frequent. We did it the first Sunday of each month, and often I forgot about it. That first Sunday would creep up, I would Forget that, it's Communion Sunday. And it, it felt like an add-on because it just didn't happen all that often. And we preach weekly, we sing weekly, we receive offerings weekly. So shouldn't we ought to receive the physical reminders of his grace as well weekly? And it is on me and the elders to ensure that our practice doesn't become hollow. Right? There is a responsibility on the church to make sure that this doesn't just become some thing that we do that we keep it sacred, that we keep it holy, just like I do my best to not allow my preaching to become hollow, or whoever's leading worship does their best to make sure that the singing doesn't become a mindless echo. 
So regardless of when we do, we do communion, and you know, if, if a church does do communion like once a month or once a quarter, are they in sin for doing that? No. But they ought to wrestle with the issue, why do we do it as often as we do or as less often as we do? And they need to be at peace with it. And I do think they are robbing themselves, but I do not think they are um, in sin for doing so. So who may partake of the supper? Here, I hope we practice open communion or what is also known as open table, meaning that any self-professed believer not walking in unrepentant sin towards God or others may partake of the table. And I would never want to restrict the table of fellowship from a brother or sister in Christ unless it is an act of discipline for correction and training in righteousness while protecting the witness of Christ. In regard to baptism, some churches require those who partake of communion to be baptized. Others could care less, which I think is careless. For as the message highlighted last week, the command to be baptized is clear, and a willful desire to not be baptized is an act of willful, unrepentant sin. If your king, if King Jesus tells you, hey, you be washed, go wash yourself, yet you refuse to be washed, what makes you think you can come to his table and eat his food when he has been so clear with, go wash? If you tell your children, go wash your hands, and they come to the table with dirty hands, you're going to tell them, go wash the hands, right? If you're a faithful parent, you're going to correct them and make sure they wash their hands. Here, I hope, if a person desires to be baptized, but the opportunity to be baptized has not been made available. Then the person, in accordance to their own conscience, if they are comfortable with it, they may partake. The washing that is of utmost importance is that of his spirit, by his word, the washing of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But that's indicative by our desire to be obedient. But if that desire to be obedient to God's word is absent, it is lacking, one ought to wonder if they are washed by the spirit at all and thus should abstain from the table. I do think, however, when it comes to children, the best practice is to have them to abstain from communion until they are baptized, regardless of the desire. And let me explain that. The waiting for the children especially, it is good for them because it teaches them sacredness. It teaches them the table is not just something to do. It's not simply juice and crackers, but it is precious. And sometimes we must wait for precious things regardless of how ready we feel. Adults have a different understanding of this. Children need to learn this. That's why for adults, I'm comfortable with, if they're not baptized, but the desire is there, come to the table. But for children, I think there is a value for them to wait and to abstain. Ultimately, though, I leave this to the parents to determine whether or not their own children may partake. But I do counsel against it until they are baptized. My two sons, uh, the two oldest, Isaac and Evan, they both waited until they were baptized, though both desperately desired to partake, and though both desperately spoke my ear off about how they wanted to eat of communion and how they saw other kids to eat communion. And I just told them, too bad, they have to wait. Communion became a carrot, so to speak. If their behavior ultimately led to them, uh, that was, if their behavior was unbecoming of a believer, I would remind them, hey, you say you want to come to the Lord's table. You say you want to be baptized. I'm not seeing the fruit. Therefore, if they begin to blaspheme the witness of Christ in their lives, I would warn them, say, hey, you either won't be baptized, or after they're baptized, now I tell them, maybe you, don't, maybe you shouldn't go to the table this week unless you deal with this behavior. Because partaking of communion publicly, because it is a public act, while willfully engaging in unrepentant sin, it slanders the faith of Christ. It slanders our witness, which you do when you willfully and unremorsefully serve sin. Right? Now, please understand this. 
This is, I'm not saying when you just sin. No, we're all going to sin. Right? We come to the table as people in need of forgiveness and sanctification. It's why we come to the table. It's not that you don't sin. Communion is not an act of law. It is an act of the gospel. We come by grace, but we do not know the grace of Christ, which beckons us, if we also welcome sin in our lives with open arms. If we taste the goodness of God's grace, the goodness of the gospel, and yet we still look to sin with love and affection, and we haven't washed ourselves of it, don't come to the table. But if you have experienced the gospel of God's grace, and you sin and it tears you apart, come to the Lord's table. Come as you look to the cross. Come as you look to the Son, recognizing it's his work, it's his faith that redeems me. He secures me. It's not me. It's by his grace. And we come to the table so we can be edified, sanctified, renewed, encouraged. It's part of our repentant act. But again, it does not save, but it does encourage us. This is why in church, um, when we do church discipline, restricting the table can be of value. It is, and it ought to motivate us to holy living because it represents fellowship. It represents communion with Christ and his bride, the church. And those who willfully engage in idolatrous, sinful behavior will not enter into his fellowship when he returns. That's Christ's fellowship. So why allow them into it now? Why should the church give them a sense of false assurance? Just as baptism is the church's act of affirming one's faith and entrance into the new covenant, the Lord's Supper is the church's re, uh, act of reaffirming that truth, saying, yes, you are one of us. So both baptism and communion serve as one of the ways which the church both rejoices and affirms one another's salvation. This is a sign of our assurance. So when we allow people who willfully sin, who scripture says you have no way of knowing, it's not saying that they're not saved, but you just don't know, we ought to protect that witness and we ought to encourage them to holy living so they can know. As such, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven that we are to examine ourselves first before we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Paul writes, this reason, For this reason, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. One's soul must be right, not just with God, but as in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, with the body of Christ. And to be right with God is not with moral actions, is not with morality, it's simply by faith, by looking upon the Son of God, repenting and being baptized. That is being right, being justified by the blood of the Lamb, not by our works. But we also must be right with the body of Christ, with our neighbors. Animosity and favoritism disqualifies a person from partaking. This is the context of 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord's Supper is an act of unity among believers. It is not just some individualistic practice that many churches have made it to be. We'll turn off the lights, you come up here in secrecy, and you partake of communion on your own. It is a communal act. It is a communal proclamation of Christ's death. How can we faithfully proclaim his death if we still live as those who are enslaved to sin or as those who are not one in Christ, who are not unified by his blood? Therefore, we are to examine ourselves beforehand. And parents, if you wonder if your child should partake, this could be a good litmus test for your children. Ask them to examine themselves and see um, if they are in an unworthy manner. If they don't understand the question, they should abstain. Anyone who can't answer that question should abstain from communion until they can answer that question. We don't want to enter, enter into an act of worship that has been commanded and instructed on from God. We don't want to do that recklessly. We want to do it faithfully, and it's better to abstain, especially since they don't save us. They are a gift. 
They are a blessing to us. They aren't necessary for salvation, but they do help in our health and our salvation and, and how we live. Now, who may administer communion? Some believe communion may only happen in the presence of an ordained priest, especially if they hold to the belief that the elements literally transform into the flesh and blood of Christ, as in the case of Roman Catholics. I think any believer with right wisdom and understanding the sacrament can do so if they recognize the responsibility of the task and the judgment that awaits them if they abuse it and misuse it. But it has to be done in community. It has to be done um, not at home alone as an individual because by yourself, again, no proclamation of the Lord's death, no public affirmation of your faith. Um, if there's no one there to hear or see the proclamation, it is just bread and wine. You're just eating food. Now, if you eat a meal by yourself, and as you're eating the food, it reminds you of communion, great, so be it. I mean, anytime you do anything that reminds you of what God has done in your life, praise him for it. But it doesn't make it communion. What makes it communion is the body of, church, body of Christ, the context, right? Who we are with, who are we doing it with, just like with baptism. You could be swimming in a pool one day, go under and be like, be reminded of your baptism. You're not baptized again. Context matters. It is good to be reminded of your baptism. Maybe God allowed you to be dunked underwater by your brother or family member to be reminded of your baptism because you're misbehaving. Who knows? But does it make it baptism? Context. Life groups can do communion. Uh, the leaders here at Hope, they are approved by elders, and we don't just approve anyone to be a life group leader. Communion can be done at weddings of those who are faithful. I personally encourage it because I think what a better time than for a believing couple who have just become one flesh to partake of the Lord's Supper as the body of Christ not only witnesses their union to one another, but their union as one with Christ. I think it meets all the criteria, and I think it's a good act for a faithful couple to begin their marriage, married life together. Now, how must communion be administered? Can you mix the elements? And this is called intinction. And that, what essentially that is, is you take the bread and you dip it into uh, the wine or the juice, and then you consume it all together at once. Admittedly, I used to be open to this, uh, but not anymore. I now see the mixing of the elements as a way of devaluing each of the elements. Um, I think it is important to keep the elements separate. Uh, because they represent two different things. They ought not to be mixed, nor does Scripture give us an example of them ever being mixed. Um, and I can't recall of any time in church history where intinction was a common practice until recently. And I think intinction does reek of paganism and novelty. Uh, that's what drew me to it. It was a new way of doing communion. It, was, it felt intimate almost. Like you take the bread and you dip it in the wine and just have it. I, I don't know. It, it was foolish, honestly, I think. Uh, but it just reeks of paganism and novelty, almost like we're trying to save time or we're just trying, we're trying to mix up communion, trying to uh, make it more appealing uh, because for whatever reason, it's not appealing enough, probably because it lacked the word of God behind it. Can communion be done virtually, a popular practice of late? Well, it depends. We have done it somewhat virtually here, or in part, secondly, we did. I think the question you need to ask yourself is this. Can everyone see everyone? Just as if they were gathered together in person. Right? So like here at Hope, we had people who were watching us online on YouTube. If they wanted to partake of communion at home, they had to open up Zoom. They had to have their video camera on so we could see them and they could see us. Just like what we do here in person. Right? I think that meets all of the criteria. Um, it's just an example of extremely being uh, socially distanced. Right? I mean, I think that's, that's the only thing. So I think in that case, 
it works. But if no one can see you, what's the point? That's, that's not what communion is. Communion is meant to be the church to affirm you as part of the body of Christ and you to affirm them. If they don't know you're partaking of it, you're just having some bread and wine. Communion, just like baptism, is a sign, a seal, a pledge of the redemptive work in our lives. And again, that requires a witness, that requires church authority to play into it. It must be witnessed. And if it is done virtually, in a manner as I just described, the elements cannot be just whatever you have at home. And that a lot of churches did that during COVID. Just, hey, whatever you got at home. Some churches do Skittles and orange juice. They'll do Skittles and orange juice at church, which I, baffles me. Um, so I've heard uh, Eric Mason said, grab whatever bread you have and whatever hard stuff you have in your cabinets. And if you want to take more than one swig, take more than one swig, as if it's a joke. That's not communion. Bread and wine or juice. Now, do we approach the table or do we pass the elements? Either way, it doesn't matter. Logistics typically play into this. I personally prefer coming to the table because I think that encourages the corporate aspect, the communal aspect more. You pass the plate, uh, you often don't see who's not taking it. And it's important to know who's not taking it so we can pray for them, so we can see what's going on, um, and we can be aware of who is part of the body of Christ. Those who come up, we need to be careful that we don't treat this table as a drive-thru. Right? We're not just coming up, doing our own thing in our own car, grabbing the elements, going down. We need to be mindful of who's in front of us, who's behind us, who comes up after us, who goes up before us, because we are the body of Christ. Must the same scripture passage be read when we do communion? Must we read Luke 22 or 1 Corinthians or any of the other communal uh, passages in scripture? No, it's not commanded. Uh, I don't think we have done that here since going weekly. I think we did do it more regularly when it was monthly, but now that it's weekly, I don't think we've actually ever read it um, at all, any of those passages. We tie it specifically to the message that's given, as it is. The Word of God sets the table. So it's not commanded. You can do it. You can do it, but as long as the gospel is proclaimed and then connected with the elements, the table sets consumants. Now, for the hot-button question, wine or juice? So if you're not awake yet, perhaps this question will and this is a question that I wrestle with regularly. And to be clear, before we get into this and I get lost, if, in case the Spirit takes me somewhere, using juice is not a sin, nor is using wine. Using juice is okay. I just want to be clear on that. I understand the sensitivity surrounding the use of alcohol, but let's look at how the church has handled this historically. Then we will look at Scripture. For the first 1,800 years of church history, it has always been wine. Watered-down wine at certain times in certain places, but always wine. It wasn't until the 19th century when Dr. Thomas Welch, a Methodist minister, who saw the practice of communion as uh, being hypocritical for the Methodists, because at the time, Methodists strongly opposed alcohol consumption in any form, except at communion. So he wanted to make a way for the Methodists to not be hypocritical in that aspect. So out of that need to abstain from alcohol, but still to observe communion, Dr. Welch invented the process that allows grapes to become juice. It's because if they're left in their natural state, they naturally ferment and they naturally become some form of wine, not juice. Now this switch was rooted in the idea that consuming alcohol 
is inherently sinful, which is far from the truth of Scripture on the matter. Consuming alcohol is no more sinful than consuming food or consummating a marriage. But willful, excessive consumption of alcohol that leads to drunkenness is sinful, just as willfully consuming excessive food is gluttonous or willfully engaging in sexual acts outside the marriage covenant is immoral. The common practice in regard to communion outside of America among faithful churches is wine, not juice. Now, we could argue context matters, right? Context matters, and I agree in part. If you're in an area where alcoholism is rampant, maybe you abstain from the wine altogether. Wisdom, discernment, leading in the Spirit must be used, but it must be measured. And we ought not to be so quick to give up what is meant to be a blessing. The argument for juice is often rooted nowadays in love for neighbor. And here are some thoughts against that. To say that juice is better, to say that juice is more loving for our brother and sister in Christ who struggles with alcoholism, is to tell an all-knowing, all-loving, all-perfect and wise God who knows our depravity better than we do, that we know a better way of doing it. God has given us wine for a reason, not juice. If alcohol was to be a concern for the first 1,800 years, God could have ordained any other beverage. Why not water? We are baptized in water, so why not drink it as well? But it doesn't matter why not ultimately, because God has ordained the fruit of the vine as a drink. Also, when we say juice, when we choose juice over wine out of love for neighbor, where was the love for the alcoholics in the first century? As if they didn't exist. I mean, Paul speaks about them in his letters. He didn't, nowhere in the letter does he say, hey, maybe church at Corinth, you should stop communion because you're serving wine and you have drunkenness among you. No, he deals with the sin, not with the table. Granted, alcoholism is pretty bad in our society, but just because society perverts something good of God does not mean that we do away with it entirely. We don't allow society to dictate to us because of their sins, because of their problems, how we ought to worship. Consider our brothers or sisters who struggle with their diets and health. In light of the obesity epidemic and the rise of diabetes type 2, do we restrict our potlucks or refreshments from all things sweet and tasty? We don't, do we? Where's the balance? Or, most significantly, and I think more seriously in our day, think about the brother or sister in Christ who struggles or struggled with sex addiction or pornography, and then they get married. Do we expect that marriage to be permanently sexless? Do we tell them, hey, you have this issue, and since you struggle with it, you need to abstain from it altogether for the rest of your life? Or do we encourage a healthy appetite, a healthy practice of sex within the right context? which at times may mean that they have to abstain from sexual gratification until they are able to do so. So why not help our brother or sister in Christ who struggles with alcoholism practice a healthy engagement with wine in the right context, which at times may require them to abstain from the table. Besides, the amount of alcohol in one of these small cups is very insignificant in most cases, depending on the wine you use, but the wine today is typically much more watered down than what it was back in the first century when Paul was writing his letters. But in any case, there is, excuse me, but in case there is any confusion on how Scripture does handle wine, let's look at how Scripture portrays wine. Brad Whittington, in his book, What Would Jesus Drink?, identified 247 references to alcohol. Forty of those are negative and speak to the dangers of drunkenness. 145 of them are positive. In fact, in these references, wine is used as a blessing, a gift from God to depraved, 
following people who are prone to drunkenness. It is an element to be used in worship. 62 of these references are neutral and are used in reference to fouls, accusations, and the such. One example of an accusation uh, in this list would be the accusation the Pharisees made about Jesus, um, drinking too much of it himself. You can find other various lists with slightly different numbers, but the result is always the same. Scripture is clear. Wine is a gift from God. It is a blessing from God. It is a gift. It is what the gospel tastes like. When we drink juice, it's not what we're going to drink when Christ returns. It's not like when Jesus returns and he sets the table and he raises the cup. He's not going to be like, thank you, Dr. Welch, for improving on my sovereign plan of the table. No, we will drink wine. So if we want to be reminded of what awaits us, it ought to be wine. For it won't be juice we drink with him, it will be wine. Of course, it won't be the same wine, nor will it be the same bread, but we get as close as we're able to to the thing of which we are anticipating. Now, all this being said, I would not want to force anyone from not partaking of the Lord's Supper because of this issue, right? I think offering mostly wine with some juice option is a fine comparison for our age and our cultural context. And again, I do not think offering only juice is a sin. I think it's a fine option. But I do wrestle with the question, is it the best option? Is there a discipleship opportunity, perhaps? An opportunity to restore one's walk with God and the truths of the gospel, who does struggle with alcohol, to enjoy the blessings of the gospel, which include consuming the elements of bread and wine. And I know that, that means, if we do that, that means we're going to have to have the hard conversations with the person who does. And I think sometimes that's why we go with juice. If we just offer juice, we don't have to worry about this brother and sister in Christ who struggles to uh, consume such a beverage that has been a blessing from God. But if we offer only wine, then we have to have that conversation. We have to disciple them. We have to walk with them and say, hey, how are you doing? Form accountability and say, see if it is a, a stumbling block for them. And if it is, hey, let's abstain for a month or so or however long it's necessary for you to come to the table and enjoy what is meant to be a blessing of Christ. Now, don't worry. What we have before us today, it is juice. I'm not doing an old switcheroo on you. It is still juice. It's going to be juice next week. It's going to be juice for uh, the weeks to come. And I hope calling it juice does not offend you. Uh, I had one Sunday where juice did offend somebody. I mentioned it as juice. And this person who was against using wine was like, don't call it juice, call it cup. Call it the cup. It sounds childish when you mention it's juice. Well, this is the thing. If we stick with juice, Let's be okay with it. Let's own it. Let's be at peace with it. And be like, it's juice. Like, it's okay. It's juice. It's fruit of the vine. It's not wine. It's still fruit of the vine. But let's be honest with it. If we don't like juice, then let's just go with wine. Now, in regard to the bread, you might be thinking, why don't we spend so much time on the bread? Right? We spend all this time on wine or juice. Well, why not the type of bread? Well, in part because the early church, they had variety in their bread, but not in their drink. The drink was the common denominator. There's always wine, and the type of wine, sure, that varied. But the bread, whether it had yeast in it, not yeast in it, and other things, that always varied. Admittedly, though, this week, as I have prepared this message, I have been struck with how feeble the crackers that we offer is, or the wafer. Yes, communion points us to what has been and what is to come, but if communion is what shapes our worship, why do we not give it more substance, more weight? Crackers are a cost-effective option, and they are easy and quick to eat. But this is communion. 
Wouldn't it be better to spend money on communion than on musical instruments, lighting, computer, software, and so forth? I think going forward, I, I, I think I will look into other options to help up our bread game. Uh, the bread, of course, will remain gluten-free. Maybe we'll get like a bread maker and we'll make our own communion bread here downstairs. I don't know. I'm just, just something I'm thinking of. But I think it would be nice if we could offer something more than a cracker. Although technically a cracker, I suppose, is a form of bread. Now, another thought I've had, and this hasn't been discussed with anyone else, right? I'm just adding to the elders' agenda right now. Um, is this idea uh, that, um, and it may, this idea may never see the light of day, but in the early church, often when they gathered on the Lord's Day, communion wasn't taking part of the service. Communion was taken with the Lord, with the fellowship meal that followed. So maybe on the weeks that we have our fellowship meals, we do communion with the meal, not with the worship service. Therefore, if you want to partake of communion that day, you have to partake in the fellowship of the body. And I think that is well in line with Scripture. That is the context of 1 Corinthians 11. They're having a fellowship meal. They weren't observing it rightly. Paul's telling them, this is how you observe it rightly. And that's just a thought. So if you're getting ready to write that email, just wait until the elder board discusses it. And then after we come out with a resolution, then you can shoot me the email, which is fine. I welcome the emails. So we say we are a church rooted in the word. We say that the gospel is at our center. Then a regular and rightful practice and observance of the sacraments ought to be a natural expression of that reality. It ought to be a natural expression all, at all churches. We must understand that as much as the significance of the elements lies outside of us and rests in God, so too does the gospel. The gospel is not something that is dependent on how we feel or how we are moved or how we lived. Like it's not dependent on our works. The gospel and its significance in work is found solely in God, not in ourselves, not beyond the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is the only part within us of the gospel that exists. And we can expect certain things to occur because of that reality. But we must understand that as we are sanctified, as we struggle against the powers and principalities of this world, we will doubt, we will fail, we will experience sadness, remorse, depression perhaps, and even anxiety. Thus, our need to regularly practice and rightfully understand the promises that are found in the sacraments of baptism and communion, and the need to be reminded of these promises and to taste them, to taste the bread, to taste the wine or the juice. And when we do so, a three-way conversation happens. God says, I have saved you by uniting you with Christ and his people which reminds us of the glorious future that lies ahead and the imperishable inheritance that awaits those who live in holiness in accordance to his will. The church corporately says we are united in Christ and committed to one another as one body, reminding us to care for one another as we care for our own physical bodies because each of us belongs to the other as we all belong to Christ. Then the individual says, I am committed to Christ and his people. A personal reminder for us as we come to the table, as we are served communion, that we are to serve the church and we are to live a life of obedience in line with our baptismal confession, reminding ourselves we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. Thus, we are to be men and women with godly character. Godly character responds to life in godly ways. Godly character is formed by repeated acts of sanctification which is rooted in holy thinking, righteous choices, and godly actions. And observing baptism and communion regularly helps us in this endeavor. Let's pray. Father, thank you for...
for your word. Thank you for your patience with us, Father. I thank you that you have given us clear instructions on the matter of baptism and communion. And Father, if there's anyone here who is struggling with uh, the significance of it, who still doesn't understand why we ought to do it, may your spirit lead them. Help us to be honest with ourselves. Help us to wrestle with issues that we have about baptism and communion. Um, and ultimately, help us to be at peace with how we do practice it, Father. Help us to continue to trust in the work of your Son, of which these sacraments point us to. And as such, Father, we ask that you'd bless the cracker and the juice that's before us this morning, that as we come up here, we partake of the elements, that we will be, be reminded of the life that your Son lived, his willingness to live in perfect obedience and to give himself up for us sinners, he who is holy and righteous, who is spotless, who suffered your wrath in place of us, Father. We thank you for the blood that he has shed on our behalf so that we would be forgiven and reconciled to you for all of eternity. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that we have our own resurrection to look forward to, Father, being united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Father, help us to live holy lives that you call us to. Help us to live in obedience as we eagerly anticipate the return of Christ whenever that day may be or whenever you may call us home, Father. May we be prepared for the moment of death. May we be ready for our last gasp of air. Father, be with the body of Christ tonight. We ask that today, we ask that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us for the week ahead. Help us to be bold witnesses of the faith. Help us to love one another, to walk with one another. Help us not to forget one another. Help us to continue to pray for each other, especially those who are unable to be here this morning, those whom we haven't seen in, in a matter of weeks, Father, or in months. Be with those who are recovering from surgeries, operations, illnesses, so forth. Be with those who are struggling um, with depression or anxiety. Father, be with this country as we celebrate July 4th and our independence. May it be an opportunity for reflection. May we recall the high price that has been paid so that we can enjoy the freedoms. And may your church be called to task. May we reckon with how we steward these freedoms. And may we be good stewards of these freedoms, Father, to glorify you, not ourselves, but to you. Help us not to take them for granted. Father, be with the veterans this weekend, especially with all the fireworks that are going off. Uh, help them. Many people might struggle with PTSD, with, with the fireworks. Just calm their souls, calm their spirits. Um, may, maybe you can use uh, this holiday weekend as an opportunity to reach to many veterans who don't know you. May the body of Christ reach out to them, Father. May we lift them up in prayers. Be with our brothers and sisters in Christ across the world who are unable to come to the table. For whatever reason, maybe they are in chains because they have come to the table. Maybe they are suffering or they are in hiding, Father. Maybe they just, they just don't have the opportunity. Father, help us honor them as we come to the table. May we continue to pray for them as we come to the table. And Father, we ask all these things, these many things, uh, especially the things that are unspoken. We ask them for your glory by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. So at this time, we'll